Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell, and this is brought to you by the Asia Group. And I'm Rich Firma. During our Tea Leaves episodes, we normally talk with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. But today, we're doing something a little bit different. Today, you're stuck with just the two of us, and we're going to continue the conversation we had in our pilot episode. There's a lot going on in the world, and we thought we would talk a little bit about, uh, Kurt, some of the current developments uh, ripped from the headlines, also um, some of your travels. We've both been on the road in Asia a lot lately. That's right, Rich. And, you know, uh, although we work together, we see each other less than we did when we didn't work together. So I see you right here in the podcast. Yeah, I know. So during the pilot, we shared some stories about growing up and discussed our first jobs and spoke about some of the trends that we're witnessing and following in Asia. But we wanted to, again, talk a little bit about what we're experiencing uh, today and some of the things that we're seeing on uh, both the political and the Asia fronts. So, Rich, I want to start with you, if I can. Um, You uh, recently came off a fascinating trip. Now, we both worked for President Obama. Uh, but as you uh, uh, can explain to us, the president's been on sort of a whirlwind tour, and he gave a, an incredibly inspirational speech in South Africa. You were with him. What's it like to travel with the former president? Yeah, so it was a it was an amazing uh, event. And just to take a step back, the uh, Obama Foundation is something president has stood up, and one of the central goals is to train young people to be more engaged in civic life. Uh, young people in the United States principally, uh, but also around the world. And so this was the first effort uh, globally to launch a young leaders program, and it was done in Africa. And so they brought 200 of the most inspiring, kind of incredible uh, young folks from across Africa into Johannesburg for five days. And it, it was so much energy, so much enthusiasm, so much promise uh, and then, yes, uh, it was also the 100th birth anniversary of Nelson Mandela, yeah. and President Obama gave the keynote address in the stadium there, about 12,000 people. Um, and he spoke for about 90 minutes, and I would just say people were on the edge of their seat waiting for, for each word. It was what about, was the speech like? I mean, well, I, I've seen yeah. accounts of it, but yeah. I, you know, I was told that he had... Uh, really crafted it himself yeah. and spent a lot of time thinking about Nelson Mandela's legacy, what he stood for, how he still resonated today. Yeah, it was it was a tour de force. It was uh, a walk through history. It was a kind of examination of some of the great leaders, particularly Mandela. But also it was a lot about what's happening in the world today mm-hmm. and what our role can be in standing up for social justice and civil rights and equality and how to do that in a thoughtful way, what some of the uh, kind of divisions are in our society uh, and how to work together again. And it gave us all a sense of hope. And he did it in a, he did it in a humorous, thoughtful, impactful way. And I will tell you, it's, um, you know, it's wintertime in, in South Africa. So it was about 45 degrees. We were sitting outside in the stadium and uh, people were out there for four to five hours uh, and were, again, hanging on every word. It was, it was really one of the most memorable things uh, memorable speeches that I've heard. 
And that, that's I, saying something. Yeah, too. <laughs> I've I've learned I have learned a lot uh, from that experience. So let me ask and you. I, and I hope that that kind of event gets replicated in other parts of the world by the by the former president. So uh, I don't want to ask you to speak a lot of school. I know that you were traveling with the president, and a lot of that was private. Uh, the, uh, president Obama has been very careful about how he talks about his successor. I think probably President Trump has been less careful kind right. of blaming everything on President Obama or uh, President Bush in some cases. Um, how would you describe President, uh, former President Obama's state of mind? How is he viewing what's going on? Yeah. I mean, I think he, he reminded us, and you've heard him say this before, about um, progress not moving in a straight line. And it zigs and it zags. Uh, but if you take a step back, the world is more peaceful, more people are being lifted out of poverty, uh, there's more new discoveries, there's more people working together and traveling than ever before. And I, I think I think that's the perspective we need. Take a take a longer game, not get caught up uh, you know, in the in the day to day. I think so much of what's done today in DC is meant to inflame and anger and get the immediate reaction, uh, and you lose sight of the, of the bigger picture. So I'm, listen, I'm focused on the, on the bigger picture. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I do think this is a particularly tough time for those people who care about a U.S. leadership role in the world. Uh, we've talked about this before. I can make the case, having grown up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where I think that's who the pre current president is trying to talk to the people of, of that part of the country. But I, frankly, again, not to get too political, I haven't seen a single policy that necessarily benefits the people I grew up with. And I, so I'm, you know, I, I'd be very comfortable when the time is right, making the case that there's a different way to do this. And you don't have to sacrifice our traditions and you don't have to sacrifice our strong role in the world, uh, Pacific power, international trading power, standing up for morality and human rights around the world. I think we can still do that and serve the good people that I grew up with yeah. as, as well. And that's that's the vision I'm going to stick with, frankly. Um, so it was a great trip. And I want to ask you, Kurt, you've been uh, traipsing around the Pacific, uh, New Zealand, China, other places. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your trip uh, to New Zealand, because it sounded pretty special. Yeah. It was great to, uh, I worked a lot when I was in government on, you know, New Zealand's in the corner of the Pacific. Um, uh, ironically, we had a very limited relationship with them for decades due to some um, misunderstandings around nuclear policy, shall we say, in the 1980s. And so with Secretary Clinton, we helped to try to rebuild a relationship. So it was nice to be back in a place that uh, folks remember that period of diplomacy mm -hmm. uh, fondly. Um, you know, a, a country like New Zealand is trying to find a balance between the United States and China. Almost all the countries in Asia are trying to figure out, you know, how to um, maintain good relations with an unpredictable Washington uh, uh, at the same time that they're dealing with a rising China. Is it just, is it just unpredictability or are they feeling the retrenchment that I've seen, 
uh, in my travels around Asia as well. I, you, you know, know I, we, I, we haven't moved a single ship in the Pacific, yeah. right? Our military is still there, still strong, but there is a sense that we have backed way off. I, I, what I would suggest to you, it is that it's much more complicated than, than either of those words suggest. Um, I don't think it's just retrenchment. I think it is a whole scale um, reevaluation of the American approach to Asia. So if you look at what has been important for the last 50 or 60 years, it has been a strong commitment of the United States to the alliance system, to uh, the defense uh, of our um, uh, approach, the maintenance of peace and stability in Asia. It is the support for trade. It's the role of values, human rights, and the promotion of democracy. Every one of those foundational aspects of the American role in Asia is being questioned now. So it's really not, Rich, just this idea of an accordion doing more or retrenching. It, it really is a whole-scale um, inversion in some respects of policies that have been at the forefront of American power. And so Asians are, are respectful and careful, um, but I think deep down there is some um, very deep anxiety. It is expressed primarily around trade issues. The idea that we would walk away, away from TPP and, uh, and criticize some of our closest allies. I think that is unnerving to Asian friends mm. uh, generally. And, you know, when I was in China, I, I, you know, had a chance to meet with pretty serious folks, the state counselor and the foreign uh, uh, secretary. Uh, I think, you know, a, a mixture of deep anxiety about U.S.-China relations, searching for any hints of wisdom about how the Trump administration runs, who could be key interlocutors. But Kurt, one thing I hear... Uh, even from semi-critics of this administration, they say, well, at least they're doing something. At least they're taking these guys on and, and you know, they're standing up uh, against them for intellectual property abuses, for theft of our, mm -hmm. uh, you know, key technologies and assets. I mean, what, what do you say to that argument? You know, at least they're doing something as if no one else has ever done anything. Well, look, I, I think the arrival of President Trump uh, coincided with a broader set of questions about the trajectory of China. And I think part of that was sparked by um, the uh, entrenchment in power of President Xi Jinping. He's now president for life, it looks like. Um, I think there are more questions about uh, a more assertive, some would say even aggressive Chinese position in a number of circumstances, particularly in uh, areas that are close to Chinese borders, the South China Sea, some of the countries that border on China. Um, I think all of those questions have caused people to reflect on whether the U.S. approach generally needs some um, uh, uh, careful reconsideration. I don't think that reconsideration is happening in the way that at least I would like to see under uh, President uh, Trump. I think some of it feels knee-jerk, some of it feels a little xenophobic. Um, and I have questions about how the conduct of the trade 
uh, 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 approach will, whether it will bear fruit or not. My, my sense is that we're heading into economic waters that are uncharted. And the president and some of his team are focusing on very narrow measurements, sort of bilateral trade balances that most economists would tell you are not indicative of precisely nothing right. and not a good way to judge the relative, you know, relationship. Right. I mean, so countries. far, so far, it's been pretty expensive for American workers, for yeah. American farmers. You saw that with the $12 billion bailout offered the other day. And yeah. I, it looks like that's going to continue to be the case. But again, the theory is we're going to make this as painful for everybody. And then this will result in a, a grand bargain at the end of yeah. the day. I think the larger concern for me as a Democrat, you know, I, I'm bipartisan, but you know, I hear what I hear is something a little bit different. That the retrenchment or the reevaluation of the American role in the world didn't begin with President Trump. It began earlier than that, and I think that means that there has to be a more careful um, explanation and defense of the Obama tradition. I, I think Dem the Democratic Party generally was so thrown onto its heels in 2016 that it, it really, it, you know, it's having trouble to figure out, figuring out the way forward, mm -hmm. let alone how to defend the, you know, the legacy of Pre President Obama, President Obama. So President Obama, Secretary Clinton, Secretary Kerry, they're all going to have to do more to make the argument that here were the foundational aspects of our engagement in the right. world. You know, I, I'm not sure we've been as effective as explaining the red line in Syria and the importance of climate change, all those things that have been foundational. Well, part, part of it is tough, right? Because you there is this tradition of giving the new president some space and... Uh, you know, not being out there with all the former administration people yeah. uh, critiquing. In fact, you used to carry around this piece, uh, this this op-ed uh, from, who was it, Adelaide Stevenson that, that yeah. talked about, you know, your your knee-jerk reaction should not be to go out and criticize the, the new people. So there is that. We don't control the House. We don't control the Senate. It's two and a half years away from a presidential race. Uh, or or in a national election, so there is isn't going to be one or two or three voices out there, so it does create a bit of a bit of a vacuum. Yeah, but I, I, look, I hear what you're saying. I look, I agree with all of that, but I think it's hard not. I look, um, I, I like you. I have a lot of experience about talking with formers, both Republicans and Democrats. I see them at conferences and meetings, and I I would say, generally speaking. I've rarely seen more anxiety, right. malaise, and sadness than uh, currently. Than I, you know, I, I've never seen as much as as we, uh, you know, yeah. as you currently in, in quiet conversation it comes up. Yeah. And I just, I think there's a um, almost a a silent desperation, like oh my god, everything I've worked for in the world is now being either, you know, kind of oh, yeah. frittered away or destroyed. No, I right? feel that and see that every day. back to your trip to New Zealand because yeah. you did something fun too. You spoke at a high school, I think, and yeah. your speech uh, was 
was really well received. What what did you talk about? Uh, I just talked about you know don't lose hope in the United States and don't you know we we played a role. Give that we'll, speech yeah, here. I, yeah. I, I give I, right. I look in the mirror, give that right. speech every every morning when I get up. But it right. was, you know, I I uh, I actually talked a little bit about Anthony Bourdain. Mm. You know, um, you got to know him just a little bit. I helped yeah. you know uh, the, some of the folks on the Obama team when they set up the now famous um, dinner between the two that they, when they had uh, Vietnamese noodles uh, in a, in a lovely little restaurant in, in, in Hanoi. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think I was like many people, you know, I got to know him in uh, the, you know, comfortable confines of my hotel suite, you know, kind of, you know, I watched him for years and, you know, when you had, when you had uh, jet lag and you were in some distant region and you, know, right. you could turn on the TV and always watch uh, an episode of parts unknown. And he just, he like, he reminded you of why you traveled, you know, what it was like to be in a citizen of the world. Yeah. He, he for me at least rich, he, he made me feel like, you know, first of all, you, you know, here's this guy who's, in, you know, eight, all this incredible food, but was incredibly fit. So you, right. you, <laughs> How does he do that? you get to yeah. get up and go to the gym in the morning. Right. But, but it was, you know, sometimes when you travel to these, these countries, you, you're spending most of your time in these, these sort of, um, refined, you know, sometimes almost, yeah. uh, you know, and kind of was, sealed. He was out on the street. Yeah. yeah. These, these hotels I, and, and he, he was living, a very, you know, kind of unique and exciting. So he, he reminded us all about what the true cultures of the places that we wanted to go. And I, I, I found his passing, you know, to be, um, heartbreaking. Well, it's so, it's so, there are so few people who connect us like that and remind us that we're not that different at the end of the day. I mean, our family watch that show, uh, religiously, and it's not a food show at the end yeah. of the day. You realize it's a show about uh, how different people get along. And food is one of those unifying qualities. But you learn so much from him. And I, I felt the same way uh, with his passing. It was, it was quite sad. Um, I want to ask you, shifting from New Zealand uh, and Asia into Washington, mm-hmm. the Secretary of State uh, testified before the Foreign Relations Committee fair amount on the Helsinki summit, a lot on the North Korea summit as well. And I'm trying to understand one thing the secretary said, which was that the North Koreans had agreed uh, to denuclearization. And, uh, you know, now it's just a matter of the modalities of how they do that. I just, I don't see that. That hasn't necessarily been uh, yeah. telegraphed. What, what, a, what am I missing about the, the summit? that that was held mm. and the aftermath well first of all just on on secretary pompeo it was striking to me watching the challenge that he is experiencing transitioning into a new role like you know he, when he was a congressman he was an incredibly effective attack dog on benghazi on whenever was necessary he'd go out and attack and would almost always draw blood um and his his personality is one of being, you know, uh, always moving on the offensive. When you're at the State Department, 
and you're the head diplomat, your primary role is to explain and to defend. And, and so I think he is uncomfortable with a lot of these hard questions, asking for accountability and, and examples and um, more clarity about what went on both in Russia and North Korea. And I don't think he's doing a particularly good job at the most basic elements of transparency that I think if he were on the other side, he would be demanding now. So on North Korea, um, I, I would say, uh, you know, I know and work pretty closely with some of the people that are working with the secretary. Um, I think we are back to square one right. on the most basic issues. And right. so, yes, the North Koreans have agreed generally about, uh, quote, quote, denuclearization. But their definition of denuclearization is very different than ours. They'd like to see, you know, the United States take certain steps. They want, you know, a larger change, not just in the stance of North Korea, but what goes on in South Korea and in the, in the surrounding region. And I think their more um, expansive definition is not something that we would accept. I, I, um, you, you were one of the ones that was cautious about going straight to the head of state summit. And, and you had expressed reservations that if you jump over all of the pieces, you, you give away something right at the beginning, yeah. which is sitting I, down with the president. I'm, I'm struck. Look, I don't, I don't believe in talking about diplomacy as a reward generally. I think diplomacy is a tool. But at the same time, I think the president, um, by basically just pouring on the praise and and not highlight highlighting the you know the the depravity of the North Korean regime and the the horror of the human rights situation. I think all of those things were without really getting much in return, I think problematic. What's interesting, if you look at the communique and some of the follow-on North Korean statements, the North Koreans are playing this game where they're basically highlighting the incredible role of President Trump, but suggesting somehow that Secretary Pompeo is not doing his job and there's a gap between the two of them. I, I, I think we're at the very earliest stages. You know, I have to say, I, I don't um, in any way envy uh, Secretary Pompeo. I'm, he is the person that's arguably closest in style and global approach to President Trump. But I think the president is dissatisfied with the direction that things are going on North Korea. I think he takes the blame for some of that. I think it is also the case, what was apparent to me is that I don't think Secretary Pompeo has a complete picture of what went on in Helsinki. It's pretty unusual to leave your Secretary of State that far out in the cold. And so, you know, I, I think it's, you know, it's a tough job to be the chief diplomat to President Trump. And that's going to become even more evident in the period ahead. Yeah, I was, I was surprised uh, at the kind of some of the condescending nature of the answers to the questions. And it really does fly in the face of the tradition of that committee, which actually also has been um, not only an overseer of the department and U.S. foreign policy, but also a pretty good partner in in a lot of places and an important partner. Yeah. I've been one of those folks that wishes 
that committee would legislate as well and actually get a State Department authorization bill and get a foreign assistance uh, bill coming out of that committee. Uh, and, you know, it, it can't just be that the only piece of legislation in the national security area mm -hmm. we produce each year is a defense bill, which is important. And I've always thought they should just reserve a chapter of that bill for the Foreign Relations Committee to produce, um, produce a bill each mm -hmm. year. So, Rich, let me ask you, just so we've talked a little bit about Anthony Bourdain and and China and, and, uh, and you know, New Zealand and, you know, what's going on on Capitol Hill. Let me ask you about, you know, there were high hopes at the beginning of the Trump administration about this fledgling, you know, new, you know, partnership for the 21st century, the one between India and the United States, this concept of Indo-Pacific. Where do things currently stand in India right now? What's going on with Prime Minister Modi and the bilateral relationship between the United States and India? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, unfortunately, if I look back over the last uh, six months, we've been mired in these trade disputes. Uh, we've had some cancellations of the key dialogue we were going to have, uh, the so-called two plus two dialogue. Now that's back on the schedule for September with the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense and their counterparts. There's some talk of President Trump going to, to India later in the year, early in January. But we're also in India entering into election season pretty soon, uh, national elections. And so, uh, you know, things will things will get tough to do big and ambitious things uh, with the United States. You know, when I look back over, uh, you know, the, the history of U.S. India and what's worked, and I'll take myself out of this for a little bit, what's worked has been this mix of, you know, kind of traditional realist schools, uh, balance of power, recognizing the threats that India faces, that the United States faces coming together. Uh, but also really important uh, personal diplomacy and ideas and values and, and bringing us together in order to get a full-scale relationship. You see that with Kennedy in 1962. You saw that with Bush in uh, 2005. You see that with Obama and, and Modi in 2015 and 2016. And I hope, I hope we can get back uh, to having a more ambitious view of what the relationship can be. I mean, it obviously takes cooperation on both sides, but right now, you know, I think we're so mired in so many other areas. We have a terrific team on the ground in Delhi and at, and at the department that I think would like to do a lot more. So let's see, fingers crossed that we'll, um, that we'll get there. I think it's too important just to do this kind of incremental, transactional you know, what has India mm -hmm. done for us lately? So I was listening as you were giving us a recap of the history, and I, 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 I thought I detected a little bit of, of PhD prospectus <laughs> yes, in there. Exactly. So you I'm practicing. Tell, yeah. tell our listeners about, you know, in addition to everything else that you're doing, that you're departing on a, uh, on the loneliest journey of all, <laughs> yeah. writing a PhD thesis. Yeah. I, I was not going to talk about that until I was actually done with it. So <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> unfortunately, we don't know, we don't know if this uh, podcast will extend that far into the future. <laughs> no, I, I, um, you know, there hasn't been, as I went back and looked at the literature, there just hasn't been that much written on the U.S.-India bilateral relationship over the years and what's worked and what hasn't. And that's the 
project I'm in, I'm embarking on. So, uh, so definitely, uh, stay tuned. Um, Kurt, I just want to ask you a couple more, uh, questions. You are working on a project for the McCain Institute on China and relatedly, you published a foreign affairs article on, on China as well. That's gotten a lot of reaction. I wonder if you can just mention both of those. Well, it, it sort of relates back to your previous question, Rich, about, about China more generally. I, I think, um, you know, I'd be one of those people that says this would be a good time to sit back and carefully look at some of the assumptions about where we think China's going and the nature of the partnership between the United States and China. It's hard to to raise those questions in a way that doesn't lead people to conclude that you are somehow rejecting every element of uh, the previous approach. That's certainly not my intent. But I would say, generally speaking, I think some of our ambitions for China, more modernization, uh, economic liberalization, uh, more political enlightenment. I think recent years have um, raised concerns about some of those ambitions, and it causes us to rethink elements of, of our overall approach. And I think, uh, you know, my um, general uh, uh, philosophy has been that we spend maybe a bit too much time, Rich, trying to shape Chinese thinking and policies. And and I think the country that does that the most is China. China's going to make, you know, kind of chart its own destiny. We should be spending more of our time thinking about the best interests of the United States. What, what should the United States... Um, uh, be contemplating in terms of its, you know, priorities in the U.S.-China relationship. I, I believe it's the most important bilateral relationship in the world. Um, I think we have suffered in a sense that, as, as a general rule, we've been preoccupied away from Asia for 20 years or so in Middle East pursuits. We're going to have to think more carefully about next steps. I don't believe it is in our interest to be you know, kind of provoked into or somehow find ourselves into a new Cold War with China. But at the same time, I think we need to acknowledge that the essential feature of the U.S.-China relationship is competition. And a competitive relationship is probably in our destiny. And the relationship with third countries is probably just as important Very in many much. ways, right? So yeah. in Southeast Asia, in Africa, in the Gulf states, I mean, they're not sitting back and yeah. we're we're kind of watching a lot of this take place in front of us. Yeah, I'd, I'd say generally speaking that the best way to do China policy is not just to go to Beijing, that China policy involves engagements with India and other countries as well. So what we tried to do with the McCain Institute was just make an argument that um, that that we needed a more careful and sober assessment or reassessment of the way forward. You know, it, it has then, you know, people say, ah, Cold War and, you know, crit that's not what the intent was. The intent was really um, to understand that this is one of those relationships that needs periodic, high-level, careful reevaluation, and that was the goal here. That's great. Uh, I think we're coming to the end. Uh, Kurt, we've probably done about a dozen of these uh, podcasts uh, so far. And, uh, you're the best guest we've had so oh, far. Thank Rich. you. Yeah. I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, but give folks just a sense of what you were hoping to kind of, when we first talked about doing a podcast, what the vision was and, and just 
you know, yeah. what you hope people get out of it and what you see coming down the road with some future, um, well, future look, topics or subject area. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, our goal is to, uh, in, you know, continue to, to recruit and bring in people from diverse backgrounds. And I think we're going to be doing more of that next year. Um, you know, our goal all along has been, you know, you and I are passionate about this region, not just its politics, but its cuisine, its sports, uh, its fashion, its, you know, contributions to technology and innovation. And we want to bring that to, you know, uh, into living color uh, for our listeners and basically uh, help people appreciate and understand that, uh the lion's share of the 21st century is going to play out in the Asia Pacific or the Indo-Pacific. And we want to help uh, uh, be uh, people's guides to that. And that's the direction that we're going to go. So it's great. I'm thrilled. So anyway, the, we, I just want to remind everyone that we will be back very soon with, with uh, uh, other guests. But for now, we want to thank all of you, all the folks for listening. And I want to ask to people to please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you, Rich.